Let's pray together. Father, I pray that in as much as I am faithful to your word tonight, it will be heard not merely as the word of a man, but as the word of God, and that it will be at work in believers, and that it will work in such a way as to triumph over sin and to produce the fruits of the Holy Spirit and to bring great glory to your name. So magnify your name, magnify your word, magnify yourself. Let there be a great awakening in our day to the word of God. May the word run in this room and in all the pulpits of the land. May the word run and triumph be glorified. Through Christ I pray, amen. On Thursday afternoon, I listened to Bud Burke's sermon last week and was deeply moved. Jesus Christ went to Gethsemane. He went to the cross so that we might pray, so that we might be heard in prayer. Now, my responsibility this week on the other side of prayer week is to do the same thing for the Bible that he did for prayer. This is the way we do it at Bethlehem. Year in and year out, we begin the year with a week called a a focus on prayer, and we put at the front end a message on prayer. We put at the back end a message on the Word because in the Bible… And in Christian experience, prayer and the Word are so intimately connected. For example, the psalmist prays, incline my heart to your testimony. Psalm 119.36, he prays, give me a heart for your Word, Word and prayer. He prays, Psalm 119.18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your Word. He prays to see what's in the Bible, prayer and the Word. Paul says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always in the Spirit. Take the Word, praying, Word and prayer. He says in uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.1, pray for us that the Word may run and triumph, prayer and the Word. In chapter 6 of Acts, the apostles say, we must devote ourselves to prayer and the Word, Word and prayer. So, over and over again in the Bible, prayer and the Word of God are put together, and our conviction is at Bethlehem, my deep conviction, my 50-year-long Christian experience is that the key to the Christian life is learning how they relate. It's bringing together the Bible and the Word of God with the gospel at its core and crying out to God together so that it is at work in us, producing new life, a new way of life 
triumphing over the, the old stuff we don't like and opening new possibilities of love and fruit for us. So my goal is to take the first two verses of First Thessalonians chapter 2 and unpack them for all they're worth to try to bore in on what does he mean the Word of God is at work in you who believe. The Word of God is at work in you who believe. What does he mean by that? Are you experiencing that? Could you stand up and just testify for a minute or two, this is how it works? Well, I hope so when we're done, if not now. So let's read the first two verses again. First Thessalonians 2, verse 13. We also thank God. That's going to be very important. We thank God constantly for this. For what? That when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of man, but as it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So I'm going to make seven observations, which you'll be able to see. And then after the seven brief observations, draw out a lesson, a generalization about how it works, and then give you three illustrations from life of how that in your life might look. Observation number one, God has spoken. Verse 13, middle of the verse there, you received the Word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as it really is, the Word of God. So twice in verse 13, he uses this phrase, Word of God. That is, God has spoken. Now here, Paul is speaking, and he came to the Thessalonians speaking, but they heard God speaking. God has spoken. We believe at Bethlehem, it's into our affirmation of faith that in history, God spoke. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So we believe that this book is the deposit of God-breathed speech. It's human. These are human words. This is English. There are other languages. But we believe that he moved those men, led those men by the Spirit, like it says in Second Peter 1, so that they wrote what he wanted them to write, which is his word, which is why everything I say is based here. And if it isn't, you should not give it credence. Observation number two. First one, God has spoken. Second observation, God has spoken in human words. Again, in verse 13, you received the Word of God which you heard from us. God didn't come down and do it. He did it through them, through, through Greek in those days. I'm doing it through English. You heard God's word, he says, from us. I'm a human. 
Paul is a human, so my word is human. I'm coming out of my mouth as a human. I'm speaking on his behalf. He appointed apostles. The apostles are his authoritative representatives that he commissioned to speak his word so that the apostles and prophets become the foundation of the church, which is, I don't claim to be inspired. I stand on this. This is foundation. It's apostolic and prophetic. Therefore, I'm standing here. I'm not that. You're not that. This is that. And we are founded here. I repeat, I try to explain this, and to the degree that I get it, my words are God's words. And if you will hear the way they heard, you won't hear mere human words when I talk faithfully. You will hear God. That's amazing. No wonder the Bible says, let not many of you become teachers, for you will be judged more strictly. 1 Corinthians 2.13, we we apostles, we impart God's truth in words, words taught by, not by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. This is Paul's claim to inspiration. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So we believe that when Paul spoke as an authoritative spokesman for the risen Christ, He was being taught by the Spirit how and what to say in Greek so that we would hear in Greek or English, God. Amazing. That's observation number two. God spoke in human words. Observation number three. The Thessalonians heard the words of Paul. This is a clear observation, but shouldn't be overlooked because it involves a new set of minds. Verse 13 again, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us. So, God is moving on Paul. Paul is articulating in human language for them to understand. A set of minds out there is construing Greek and drawing meaning out of it. This is all a very human thing. That's why we teach our kids to read. The main reason for learning how to read in the world is the Bible. There are other good reasons. Can't get along in life without reading. But the best reason for teaching a kid how to read is so he can hear God. My goodness, why else would you want to teach him? Little, other little reasons, but mainly you want your child to hear God talk which he does here. Amazing. So, we teach them how to read. They have brains. They start to listen to Sunday school teachers and mom and dad and sermons, and they hear human words, and they're learning to construe meaning, which is why we have colleges and seminaries, because you shouldn't just read. You should read well. That's all we do in BCS is teach how to read well. It's called education. Drawing real meaning out of books and especially the Bible that's really there. Real meaning that's really there takes some brain work. So they're hearing. It's a very human thing and they're listening to human words. Now, observation number four. As they heard, God acted on their minds and hearts. 
This is big. So my fourth observation, while they were listening with human brains to human words, God acted on their minds and hearts. What did He do, and how do we know that He did that? Here's what He did. He enabled them to receive Paul's words as God's Word. So verse 13 again, when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, so they received it, they welcomed it, they embraced it, not as the word of man, but as it really is the word of God. That's what God did. God caused that to happen. It didn't happen to everybody when Paul spoke. Some people stoned him. Some people beat him. Some people drove him out of town. Others heard God. Why? Because God caused them to hear God. God worked in their minds. God worked in their hearts. God gave them eyes of the heart to perceive, in human words, divine word. That's what God did. Now, how do I know that? You should ask. I know it because at the beginning of verse 13... Paul thanks God for doing it. And we also thank God constantly for this. What? When Paul thinks about what has happened in Thessalonica, that that they heard his word as the word of God, what does he do? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Not them. Let's just make sure you see this. We also thank God constantly for this. Now, ask yourself what the this is, and then keep reading, namely, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but the word of God. That's what I'm thanking him for. He did it. I wouldn't thank him if he didn't do it. It's his work. You should right now, if God's at work in you, feel rising up in your heart a deep, deep gratitude that you're a Christian. You didn't make yourself a Christian. Once upon a time, you were reading the Bible. It was boring. It didn't mean anything. You didn't see anything beautiful, glorious, compelling, powerful. It was just nothing. And now you're sitting there, if you're a Christian, loving it. Loving it saying it is more precious to me than anything in the world besides God himself. I love the Bible. I love the gospel. I love the word. Where did that come from? It came from God. God opened your eyes. That's what he says. I thank you, God, that when I spoke your word, they didn't stone me. Or drive me out of town. They received it. They welcomed it as the very word of God. Miracle of miracles. They saw in human words a divine word. Can you think of any analogies to this in the Bible? I thought of one that might be helpful. Jesus said to the twelve 
Who do you say that I am? Remember that? And Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of God. You remember what Jesus said back to him? This is Matthew 6, 17, 16, 17. Looked him in the eye, maybe, and said, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So now put the two together. God enabled Peter to see a, in a human person a divine person. And God in Thessalonica enabled them to see in human words divine word. I tremble at what has to happen in this room week after week for me to have any success at all. Spiritual effects of preaching are not man-made. They are God-given. And if you're a lover of people and a lover of the Word, you should be sitting praying all through the service, just whispering little prayers to God for yourself and for everybody around you. God, do that. Enable me to see, to perceive, to love, to treasure, to cherish, to receive, to embrace. All that you're, you're doing there, all that you are there, all that you're saying there, guard me from any mistakes Piper makes, but oh, if there's truth here, make me welcome it. That's, that's the way I would be praying anyway, if I were you. So that's observation number four. Namely, I'll say it again, they heard God, as they heard, God acted on their minds and hearts to receive the word as God's word. Now, number five, the Thessalonians accepted Paul's word as the word of God. Now, I've said it already, but that deserves its own point. So point four God acted. Point five, the effect of God's action was they heard Paul's words as God's word. Now, there's another word in verse 13, very important for making the the final point. There's another word here in verse 13 that describes what welcoming or accepting or receiving human words as God's Word is. I wonder, give a little quiz right now if you'd spot it. It's at the end, and it's in the word, believers. I think what he's saying, you accepted it not as the Word of God, but as what it really is, the Word of God. Not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. So this is just like 1 John 1, 12. To as many as received, comma, who believed in his name, receiving and believing are just like that. And here it's the same. You received, you, you welcomed human words as God's words, and then he calls them believers. That's what, that's what you are if you do that. 
Believing is hearing a message through human words, which is God's, faithful to the gospel, faithful to the Bible, and hearing it that way and welcoming. That's faith. That's called faith. That's what faith is. Faith originates in the hearing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit illumines, opens the eyes of the heart. It sees beauty. It sees glory. It sees treasure. It sees truth. It embraces it. All that is the where, where faith comes from. That's what faith is. So if, if you read your Bible and you find God talking to you with power, you're a believer. That's what faith is. And does. Observation number six. The word of God was, known, was now at work in the Thessalonians. This word that they had received as God's word, in man's word, is at work in the Thessalonians. Now, here we are near the end of verse 13. Isn't this a rich verse? I love this verse. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is, now here we're getting real close to the practical part, which is at work in you believers. So God acted, caused them to see and welcome God's Word, and now that Word, having been welcomed through the divine illumining power of the Holy Spirit, is working. Oh, if we can get this. It's working, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and judging the secret things of the heart. Hebrews 4.12. This is not dead. This is not like another book. When God opens the eyes of the heart to see it as God's Word, it's alive. It works in you. That's number six. And finally, number seven, the working of God's Word produced joyful endurance in suffering. It's going to be a little harder to see, but you'll see it as soon as I point you to it. What this Word is doing in this context, it does lots of things. What it's doing in this context is the miracle of causing people who once hated pain, hated suffering, now to experience suffering for Christ joyfully. That's what it's doing. So let me show it to you. So here we're going to run from 13 to 14 and then check in with chapter 1 to finish it. Which is at work in you, end of verse 13, and then this next phrase comes with, uh, I'll give you some evidence for that, he says. For, here's the evidence that the Word is at work in you. You brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ that are in Judea. For you suffered... The same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Now, nothing said about joy there, so why? I don't think it's enough to merely say, you believed him, you received his word, it is at work in you, and you're suffering. Therefore, we know the word is at work in you. That doesn't work. Logically, that doesn't work because 
they might be suffering and say, I'm out of here. I'm done with that. I didn't know it was going to cost me suffering. No way. That They could be responding like that. That's not how they're responding. How do I know that? Because Paul's been here before, and that's the reason he didn't put it here. He's already said this. So let's, let's go see where he said it. Chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Same context, same idea. Chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became, it's the same thing you see in verse 14 of chapter 2. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now I know why this is evidence. Now I know why he could just say, The word is at work in you, end of verse 13, for you suffered, because he's already said how they suffer, they're suffering with joy. How? It's the Holy Spirit, by the word, awakening joy in their hearts. Okay, now I'm done with the exposition. I've seen all I want to see. I'm sure there's more to see there, but I want to draw some things out of this now for our lives. So let me give you the general truth, and then we'll just go to three applications of what it might look like in your experience. Um, Living the Christian life is sometimes called walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. And I'm going to argue here that we live the Christian life or we walk by the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit overcomes our temptations to sin by awakening joy through faith in the Word of God. Let me say it another way. Let me do this. When, when I think Word of God here, I think at the center is the gospel the story of Christ crucified and risen and reigning and all that he did there. And, and now I know, according to 2 Timothy 1.20, that when he died and shed his blood for this sinner, he bought for me yes to all the promises of God. All the promises are God, of God are yes in Christ Jesus And I'm in Christ Jesus by faith, so they were bought for me by the blood of Jesus. So now, this center of the Word is really big. It's just really big. So that when I think, how does the Word work in me? How does it work in me to kill sin and to awaken fruit and love and joy and patience and meekness and kindness? How does it do that? The answer is, the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of my heart. And this isn't just at the beginning of the Christian life. This is like every morning we need this. When Paul prayed that in Ephesians 1.17, that the eyes of their hearts will be opened, he's praying for believers. So we need this every day. The Holy Spirit daily, as we cry to him and rely upon him, opens the eyes of our hearts, our, our affections and our delights, and we see wonderful things in the gospel center and in this magnificent Um, purchase called the promises of God and all the stories of the Bible that undergird that and explain that and and bring that to us. It's all inspired. So 
So I'm not going to limit this. And the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see precious, wonderful things there. And as we see them, joy happens and joy has the power to enable us not to become angry at God when we suffer, which they were doing. They were suffering. This was exhibit A for Paul for why they were elect. He says that in chapter 1. This could be exhibit A for you that you're a Christian. How do you respond to affliction? Do you lose all your joy and just get angry at people? Or is there joy that rides through it all, sustains you, carries you? You may be weeping your eyes out and it's still there because he's there and the gospel is there and the word is there and the Holy Spirit's not dropping you. And you know something's happened to you. So the, the general lesson is, say it again, you got all these pieces. You got Spirit of God, Word of God, believing, and joy, which results in a, a certain kind of life. So the Holy Spirit opens the eyes. We're looking at the Word, human words, and we now see God and His Word, beautiful, wonderful things as we read, and those beautiful things awaken joy, and joy kills lesser joys caused by sinful temptations, and we move out into a life of love and, and suffering for Jesus' sake. Now, making that practical for me requires some simple devices. I have one. It's an acronym. You may have seen it in a book or two. A-P-T-A-T. You can pronounce it aptat. doesn't mean anything. I just find it easy to remember. And aptat for me, I, I've sat on this pew for, this, this sanctuary is 21 years old. And I've sat there and in the old one and done aptat for 30 years. Well, I can't remember when the first time I thought, maybe 25. And I do it, I, I did it 30 minutes ago, and I do it before every challenge to my life and faith, something like this. So here's what, here's what APTAT is, and then I'll work it through with this text. A-P-T-A-T, A, admit, Piper, you can do nothing, John 1, 15, 11, 15, 5. You can't do anything without God. Just admit it, say it to him, say it to yourself, say it, I can't do anything. So you're walking into a situation, and you say, can't do it, can't do it. At least you can't do it with any spiritual effect. Second, a P, pray. God help me. T, trust a specific tailor-made blood-bought promise. That's the key. Praying is key, but this is really at the heart of how God works, how the Holy Spirit, how the Word works. I'm after an explanation. What do you mean, Paul, when you say the Word is at work in them? The Word is at work in them. How does it work? And I'm saying right here that we T, trust a specific tailor-made promise. I'm going to give you three examples in a minute. A-P-T-A, act. You got to act. You can't lie in bed waiting for God to act for you. You got to get up and go to work. You got a hard phone call to make? Dial the numbers with your fingers, your will, act. You got to do it. But you've just trusted. You just said you can't do it. You just cried out for help. You've just trusted a promise that he'll do it and help you do it. And now you're acting 
in reliance upon that coming true. That's what walking by faith. That's what walking by faith is. You're acting, but you're acting in faith. You're leaning on another. It's the miracle of the Christian life. For some of you, this is total foreign language. You don't even know what I'm talking about because you're not saved yet. You don't have the Holy Spirit. And the last one, T, admit, pray, trust, act. And when you're all done, thank Him. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for helping me again. I can't tell you how many times I've fallen on my face at the end of a passion in a hotel room saying, God, I don't know how I did that. Nobody knows. Nobody knows what that cost. Nobody knows what I was like when I was 15. Thank you. Go home after these services. Thank you. They came again. Look at you. You're sitting there. Thank you for this church. So there's APTAT. Now here are three, three ways to work it out. Number one. Suppose you are tempted to be afraid, and this is just universal. I mean, little, little teeny anxieties and really big ones. Just you pick yours right now, what you're most for it, worried about, okay? And here's, here's the way it works. You're, you're afraid, you're anxious, could be really severe, and could be tiny. And uh, you're called to do something. And you know it's the right thing to do, and you're afraid to do it. Got to do something. You got to. You got to act. So what do you do if you're afraid? You admit honestly, I'm afraid, and I can't do this by myself. I cannot do what I must do because I'm afraid to do it. Number two, you pray. God, grant me courage. You don't even be fancy here at all. Just total simple language. God, help me not to be afraid. Please give me courage. Please, God, I've got to overcome this. Help me. Okay, now we all pretty much do that. We, we're all pretty desperate people. But now the T, the trust piece, here's how that works. One of the reasons the Bible, the, the, the fighter verse program and is essential here at Bethlehem is because the people that created it get what I'm talking about. Totally. You know, fighter verse, fighter verse. This means I'm fighting temptation. I'm fighting unbelief. I'm fighting anxiety. With what? Well, yeah, with admission that I can't do it. And yes, with prayer, but, but with trust. Trust in what? We, we all tend to operate in such vague Christianity. Like it's vague. You know, like, I've got to trust something. And I'll tell you, I know, I don't know how many hundreds of verses by heart. And I can come up to a moment and forget all of them in an hour of crisis. The devil has an incredible, I mean, these, these arrows, I don't know what they are, but I think one of them is, bing, no memory. <laughs> right when you need it, right when you need it, it's gone, which means you've got to fight to learn these things and memorize these things and have them right there tumbling around in your forefrontal lobal brain part, <laughs> whatever that is. So you call to mind. So here, here is John Piper's uh, gear sound when everything is in neutral and the and the the motor is idling. 
Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will hold you up in my victorious right hand. I have used that against the devil and against my fears a thousand times in the last 50 years. Day after day in Germany, I remember, when I was a graduate student, I was anxious every day because of the language issues. I was surrounded by liberals who didn't believe the Bible. I didn't know anything about I mean, it's, I, I, it was just tense all the time, and it was constant warfare. And I'm riding my little balloon tower across these cobbled streets. I remember going over to the university for something I didn't want to do. I'm scared to do it, thinking, fear not, fear not. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm going to help you, John. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to hold you up. And he did. He did. He's always done it. But I wasn't vaguely thinking, oh, I need help. Oh, God, you're kind. Uh, do something. That, that's better than nothing. But way better is to remember something specific, tailor-made, blood-bought that he said. He said it. And you take that into your brain and you preach it to yourself I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. And you actually picture him that close to you saying it. He's here. He's in here. Jesus is in here. And he's talking. This is his word. He's talking to me. I will help you, John Piper. I will help you. You believe me? And there's the issue. Do we? Do I believe him? So there's the, there's the T. Pick a verse. A fighter verse, some verse that's tailor-made for this sin, which is anxiety, and preach it to yourself, and then act. You just act. You act. It's sometimes like stepping out on air. That's what faith sometimes has to do. He's going to keep his promise. I don't see any limb out there. And then when you're done, you thank him. That's number one. Here's another example. The temptation of covetousness or greed. So, you desire something. Everybody deals with this. That's why thou shalt not covet is in the Bible. You desire something. And the desire starts to get really strong, really powerful. You are starting to lose your contentment in Jesus. You are starting to feel, if I don't have this thing, might be a husband, might be an iPad, might be freedom from cancer, might be whatever, you want it so bad. I must have this that you're losing con- joy. You're losing contentment. In fact, you're being tempted. If you don't give it to me, I'm quitting the faith. That, that's, that's how serious co- covetousness can be. Desire can start to just conquer you for something you don't need. You need God. So what do you do? Number one, you admit, I can't beat this. It's too strong. I need your help, God. I really need this powerful desire. I've tried to shake it. I can't shake it. Number two, pray. Oh, God, conquer this covetousness. Take away this craving. It's irrational. I know I don't have to have an iPad, or I don't have to be married, or I don't have to have a job. I don't have to have it. It's killing me. I want it so bad. I don't want to be killed. And then the key, T, got to have a promise. You need a specific, blood-bought, tailor-made promise. And here's a good one. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said. Now, here comes the promise. That's exhortation. Here's the promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. 
So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can do to, man do to me. And that text, that promise is given as a solution for the love of money. Keep your life free from the love of money for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And, and he whispers that to you. You don't need money like you think you do. You need me. Do you believe that? Will you hold to me? Will you rest in me? And then you act. You act. You turn away from the idol. You stop looking at it at Amazon. And you thank him for the deliverance from that craving. One more and be done. The temptation of bitterness for being wronged. You, you were treated badly, really badly or slightly badly. Imagine the worst sexual abuse or imagine just some slight at work. And, uh, or, or somebody, maybe this is even worse, somebody you love, your child, or somebody was really treated badly. And you're angry and, and really angry. And efforts at biblical reconciliation have been done, and and it may or may not have been very fruitful. It certainly doesn't feel satisfying. And the offender, maybe he tried to repent, maybe not, maybe she said something, but that isn't working either. You're just really angry, and you can't let it go. You might be married to this person, it might be your father, it might be your former boss, it might be a friend who did something betrayal-like. And you know the bitterness in you that you go to bed with every night is wrong. You know, and you know it's killing you and nobody else. And you clench your fist and you grit your teeth every time you think about this thing and, and can't let it go. In fact, you... you one of the main reasons you can't let it go is because it's just not right. Justice has not been done. There's nothing proportionate here about what I'm experiencing, what that person is experiencing. It's just wrong, wrong, wrong. And you, you preach that to yourself over and over again. And it's true and deadly. Now, what do you do with that? If that's true, what do you do? Number one, you admit, I can't shake this. This bitterness in me is really deep, and I can't get free of it. It's destroying me, and uh, that person is just happily moving on with their life. And secondly, you pray, God, I really need your help. I can't stop feeling rage, and uh, I want you to take it away. And then, the key one, you trust a tailor-made, blood-bought, specific promise. Now, where would you go? Well, here's the one I will suggest. Romans 12:19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. That's a promise. Vengeance is mine. I will will repay. Justice will be done. May not be done now. This, this, this promise says, if one of the things holding you back from letting it go 
is it's wrong. Justice hasn't been done. They're getting away with murder. Then this is tailor-made for you. Because what it says is, God will lift from you the suicidal load of vengeance and carry it to one of two places. He will carry it to the cross if the person repents, or he will carry it to hell where they will be forever. And you can't improve upon either of those. If they're in hell, you don't need to add to their punishment. If their load was born and forgiven and paid at the cross, you would dishonor the Lord if you didn't share in the forgiveness. It's a massive promise. I will repay. And that is true for every single sin that has ever been committed anywhere in the universe at any time. That's true of that. God will repay that sin, either on the cross or in hell. It's one of the reasons why hell is such an important reality to know about. So you believe that. You say to yourself, all right, I trust you that you are the judge. I, I hand over to you who judges justly. I will lay it down, and then some actions are taken. I'll stop reading those letters. In fact, I'm going to burn them. I'm going to burn them. I will stop going to that place with all those reminders. I will stop savoring a cycle of thoughts in my head. When the thought comes up, I will say no to that thought and shift my mind over onto the cross and over onto the judgment. You take actions and then you thank him. We could keep going. In fact, I wrote two books about this. One's called Battling Unbelief. One's called Future Grace. All those books are is an effort to unpack this message in 400 or 150 pages. So you could do this with a lot of sins. Let me close. I commend to you Aptat. If you have a better one, send it to me. Because I'm always on the lookout for more effective ways to walk by the Spirit. Admit that you can do nothing. Pray for divine power and help. Trust a specific tailor-made, blood-bought promise and go ahead and act in reliance upon the fulfillment of those promises. And when you're done, thank the Lord. So my prayer for 2012 for us at Bethlehem is that I would be able to look back and you would be able to look back and say this. This is verse 13 again. I thank God constantly that all year long at Bethlehem, we received the Word of God in the Word of man. Either this human Word, which is God's Word, or to the degree that I get this right, my human Word. So in your Bible devotions and in your listening to preaching, I pray that God will be at work, and will enable you to hear in the Word of man the Word of God. And the result will be, end of verse 13, that the Word of God is mightily at work in us, conquering those kinds of sins and freeing us for the fruit of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that that would come true, that the Holy Spirit would rest upon our church when we read our Bibles in the closet 
And when we listen to teaching in a class and when we listen to preaching in the pulpit, may there be the work of the Holy Spirit enabling us to see and receive the Word of God in the Word of man. And so, be at work in us, mighty God, by your Spirit, through your Word, for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.